Well, you know, one of the things that I think it's lost in all of this is that, you know, we, we tend to frame and, and you know, it's, it's the, from, from the media to policymakers to, to, to just every single one of us, right, the public at large, we, we like to say that, oh, climate change affects us all. And, and I, I, I often say, you know, we, we really need to be saying climate change affects us all, but not equally, yeah. right? Because honestly, climate change affects you to the extent that you have the resources to respond to those impacts, that to the extent that you have the resources or means to mitigate its, its effects. Welcome to Animalia, where we cover all things conservation, climate justice, and sustainability. In the last few months, you've likely heard or seen some headlines about the quote-unquote border crisis happening in the U.S. southern border. As with the case with most media today, this term alone is misleading and meant to fearmonger and get clicks. Yes, there has been a surge in border numbers since January. According to the U.S. Customs and Border, what they call encounters with an illegal immigrant at the southern border of the U.S. has increased 130% from January to May, and that's significant. Well, of course, most pressing this issue fail to mention that in 2019, over the same January to May period, there was a 148% increase. The story here is not the big swing from this year to last as that could be explained by the pandemic and a sort of buildup that was always going to spike as soon as things normalized. The story is not even the total number of overall apprehensions at the border or its 10 to 20 year trend line on an overall basis. What the most interesting story here is in the 10 plus year spike in migrants we've seen coming from Central America outside of Mexico particularly what's called the Northern Triangle, comprising of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, the same three countries being pointed at for the current surge. So why is this happening? While historically, we think of migrants and refugees fleeing from some form of political or cultural persecution, perhaps a civil war, these are not the primary drivers anymore. What's pushing folks out of these countries are changes to their ecosystem, historical droughts, larger and more frequent hurricanes, receding coastlines, and eroding soil health. In other words, climate change. These are countries where a majority of the population lives off the land, either as autonomous local indigenous people or as commercial operators in agriculture, often producing many of the staples we consume here in the United States, such as coffee and beans. Only with the U.S., if their supply runs dry, we can simply buy elsewhere. Folks in these Central American countries do not have that luxury. And nearly all of them live in what we would classify as lower income, paycheck to paycheck living, meaning any disruption or displacement has huge ramifications. Now they're being forced to move everything they have in a desperate search for a way to make a living somewhere else, such as the United States. And it's about time we call this what it is. These are climate refugees. This is climate migration. And this is yet another harrowing example of how this climate crisis is hitting us faster and with more fury than even the most pessimistic climate scientists thought one or two decades ago. Today on Animalia, we dig into this, and we're joined by Amali Tower, founder and executive director of Climate Refugees and member of the World Economic Forum, as well as Alfredo Moran, program quality manager for CARE in Guatemala. You can learn more about each of our guests and their incredible organizations in the podcast description. 
Sure. Well, thank you so much for, for inviting me on your show today. My name is Amali Tower. I'm the founder and executive director of Climate Refugees, which was founded in 2015. I myself come from a refugee protection background. And what that means then is that I've been working with refugees, those who are fleeing conflict and violence, you know, and those who fall under sort of like what we consider traditional refugees and who can seek protection under the 1951 Refugee Convention. And, and I'll, I'll sort of circle back to that as, as I'm sure we'll, we'll get into some questions. Now, I was doing that work with the various NGOs for the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, for the U.N. Refugee Agency, and I've been doing this work, you know, for a very long time all around the world. And in the context of doing that, you know, you, you speak to populations who have been displaced and who have crossed international borders seeking protection and in the process of listening to their stories. At the time, I didn't realize the significance, but I heard so many stories of people talking about essentially livelihood loss, droughts, failed crops, not being able to feed their families moving multiple times before being forced to move uh, across an international boundary because of conflict that was also happening. And, you know, and at the time I was just sort of like dealing with, you know, incredibly intense heat, like let's say in the Horn of Africa or whatever. And, and, and thinking to myself, okay, yes, because it's not uncommon to hear refugees tell their stories is a very human thing. I mean, wouldn't you and I want to tell our stories, right? And, and when you're talking to people who've been in exile and, and haven't, you know, really talked to people for, for sometimes decades, this is not uncommon. So it took me many years to sort of unpack the, the sort of very revelatory information and the, the intensity and the seriousness of what I heard. So it's not really till I came back home to New York that, and, and several years later that I came to really understand that what I was listening to or what I had heard was essentially climate displacement. And now let's meet Wilfredo from CARE. CARE is a massive, incredible global organization uh, fighting poverty, combating poverty in a number of ways and climate justice and the adaptive needs uh, for climate change, especially for poor and marginalized people is a big, big part of that. CARE operates in over 100 countries, reaching over 90 million people. It's also the origin of the CARE package. CARE actually stands for Cooperative for American Remittances to Europe. It was founded shortly after World War II as a way to get food packages from Americans back to loved ones in Europe. And you probably at some point in your life have sent a CARE package to somebody. And interestingly enough, that is the origin. Wilfredo, who's joining us today, is working in their Guatemala division, one of those countries in the Northern Triangle that is being greatly impacted by the advances of climate change and climate displacement. Buenos dias, uh, James. Uh, well, the, basically, the work that I do uh, involves development and risk management for different economics aspects for Guatemala. And we're basically trying to optimize the process for the people, local people, for many different aspects of economy, including food and better economics overall for the environment. My friend Jose will be translating for us with Wilfredo, so you'll hear him throughout this episode. As an outline for this episode, 
We're going to first dive in with Amali on what climate migration really looks like and why it's been so hard to make progress on addressing. Then we'll go deeper on the current issue at the border in the U.S. and what's going on in the Northern Triangle, particularly with Guatemala, with both Amali and Wilfred. We all need to be climate activists. And so the next part of this is really actions and activism advocacy. So besides the direct advocacy we do with levers of influence and in policy, we we also have platforms uh, for digital engagement because really what is ultimately needed is a, 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 a citizen's engagement for everybody to be involved and, and to be able to take actions at all the various levels of, of individual, you know, involvement and, 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 and also comfort. So we have a platform called Frontlines, Actions on Climate Displacement, which allows us also to link up with other partners and other organizations doing, you know, sort of the disparate work that this issue cuts across. There's an, like an interesting duality in my mind of on one hand, how incredibly complex the intersection of these issues are, right? Because on its own, climate change is a, a massively complex issue with a lot of variables, a lot of different opinions, and you know, just affecting different parts of the world differently. But also, so is you know, displacement and migration is a very complex issue. So I can only imagine the complexity of bringing those two together and trying to work with people to create progressive policies to 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 to, to move this issue forward. But on the other hand. It also seems very straightforward to me of, hey, if I'm a farmer living in, you know, we were talking about earlier, Guatemala, and because of 10-year drought, you know, historic droughts are happening all over the world, I can't do my trade. Mm-hmm. What, like, what do you want me to, of course, I have to go somewhere to do something different or to, you know, find, you know, more arid for fertile land that mm-hmm. I can do my craft. And, you know, one of the things I think we... We take we we sort of take advantage of a lot of luxuries we have in America. Many of us do, and to be fair, not all Americans have these luxuries. But one of them that many Americans do is how easy it is for us to kind of get up and move, change careers, move around the country. And I think it's something that people don't have perspective on. Well, a for definitely pockets of America that is not very easy, especially in our lower income communities. But across the world, it's even harder in a lot of these these countries. It's not so simple to just get up and, you know, go on indeed.com and get a job in another city and move to that city, get an apartment in a week like that. You know, I, I think people sometimes don't appreciate what displacement really is and the challenge of that, because in a country like America and countries like France and Germany and UK, we have it pretty easy, to be fair, on a global perspective of changing careers and moving. And so that's one thing that I think I feel like it's misunderstood a lot is, is this how hard this issue is for people that don't have those luxuries in life. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, you know, one of the things that I think gets lost in all of this is that, you know, we, we tend to frame and, and you know, it's, it's the, from, from the media to policymakers to, to, to just every single one of us, right, the public at large, we, we like to say that, oh, climate change affects us all. And, and I, I, I often say, you know, we, we really need to be saying climate change affects us all, but not equally, yeah. right? Because honestly, climate change affects you to the extent that you have 
the resources to respond to those impacts. That to the extent that you have the resources or means to mitigate its, its effects. So let me give you a really great example, right? Exactly what you just said about displacement. If a disaster or the slow onset effects of climate change impact your life and you need to move, or a disaster impacts you suddenly and something happens that you did not see coming, most, not all, because we certainly have a lot of social and poverty impacts in this country as well, most people have insurance, personal insurance that that would offer some. You know, uh, Amali, sorry, I don't want to cut you off. I just my internet bugged out for just a second there, oh, and sure. I don't want to miss what you said. You it it cut out right when you said right when you started the statement. If a disaster blank, so do you right. mind just going back just fifteen seconds? No sorry problem. So if a disaster hits somebody in the United States. Most Americans, certainly not all, right, because poverty is, is, is very much an issue, but if a disaster hits a city, the residents within that city would have personal insurance, and if even if they don't, they would have, you know, state or federal support. So even FEMA could come in, right? Like we have the apparatus here to have, you know, municipal and state-led initiatives that can say, hey, FEMA, could you come in? We we need we need XYZ assistance. And 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 that and that's something that that that's a threshold of like protection that that just about every American, every resident, regardless of like, you know, status would would have here. And granted, James, we can go into like the details of of the the justice of how that's metered, but yeah, of course, you get my point. Now, in a lot of countries, and the vast majority that who who also the injustice of having contributed very little to climate change, there are no safety nets, right? So, to stick with your Guatemalan example, you're dealing with a scenario in which you have farmers in the dry corridor of these northern Central American countries that are migrating to the United States southern border, who are dealing with a five plus year drought and are farmers, subsistence farmers who've been living in the dry corridor, 30% of, of the Central American territory is, is you know, made up of the dry corridor. The dry corridor is expanding. The dry corridor is a situation in which you've got a lot of multinational corporations. You've got a lot of gangs that have transferred from, you know, other illicit trade into now supporting a lot of multinational corporations in like hydroelectric, hydroelectric and tourism and a lot of like agribusiness that is happening simultaneously to where these subsistence farmers are living. And, you know, and these subsistence farmers are are, are dealing with a drought, with very little land, with no safety nets, with some such small plots of land that they don't even have the capacity to sort of like switch crops in a situation where, let's say, drought would make it impossible for you to grow maize, or the temperatures are so extreme that you normally wouldn't, where you'd grow, you know, beans and, and maize, which is the main staples in this in this region, these crops are failing. You don't, even if you were to eat, were to have heat resistant seeds, you're also dealing simultaneously with that same scenario I said of multinational corporations that are using the land, right? 
And you're also dealing with illicit trades that are taking the land by force. You're dealing with long historic legacies of these populations, most of whom are indigenous, who've been historically oppressed and marginalized and do not have land tenure. So there are no rights that are protecting these populations to begin with. So that's a political problem, right? And so you've got all kinds of like social and um, political and civil and, 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 and just the whole suite of human rights that are being sort of infringed upon. Then you have these environmental distresses of climate change, which this population has had almost no contribution towards because this is not a population that is polluting, that has high levels of CO2 emissions. In fact, Central America has less than 1% contribution. And this is a population that as of now has been dealing with the impacts of climate change, demonstrated by the fact that you're dealing with very serious levels of food insecurity where the WFP and the FAO have well over 1.4 million people at high levels of food insecurity. And for us as a country to push back on this and say that these are economic migrants, quote unquote, a classification which has absolutely no legal basis whatsoever because there is no such thing as an economic migrant is, is just absolute, absolutely ludicrous because it is to deny a bunch of absolute facts and statistics that I just, you know, recited to you off the top of my head, by the way, you know? So, I mean, we, we've got to be able to, to recognize that, yes, you can be in a scenario where there are some political tensions. You can, you can be in a scenario where there are some violent factions that are making your livable, your, your situation somewhat insecure. You can also be in a situation where you're dealing with an environmental, a social, a cultural, and an economic situation that is equally and simultaneously making your situation incredibly insecure. And I'll just say finally, long before a lot of these people end up at the US southern border, a lot of these indigenous people within the Central America Dry Corridor have been migrating internally within their own countries in much larger numbers. Numbers we don't even seriously have because these are these are not things that we have we're, we're prepared as a as a world to even like fully understand or measure outside of disasters in the climate change context we do not have the appropriate and robust measures to know how you know how much is climate change actually driving displacement you know in these like slow onset conditions we it's it's impossible to really know so, you know, if the United States thinks that it's, it's dealing with a quote unquote big problem, one, it really isn't. And two, it's, it's incredibly also predictive because these, these numbers have been arriving to the United States now for well over 10 years, you know, so it's, it's, it's nothing to be sort of alarmed or surprised about. And there's certainly climate components driving it as well. One of the many thorns in the side of solving this issue remains that those countries and people who are impacted the most by things like extreme weather, plastic pollution, and eroding soil health, i.e. those with the most to lose in terms of the inability to easily replace lost work elsewhere, don't have a seat at the table in major international policy and diplomacy. Amali and I discussed this as well as some ideas she has on how to address this gap. There seems to be the, the crux of the real like injustice here is to me this sort of notion that those affected the most by climate change in the near term 
have no seat at the table in global policymaking. And yes. it really frustrated me a couple, it was about a month ago with the G7 summit and the language they use when they're there of, you know, just kind of very hand wavy things, very non-concrete, non-committal. I imagine if those were countries like Guatemala, you know, Bangladesh at that table, they wouldn't be so hand wavy and non-committal, right? I would feel like, no, we really kind of need to be urgent. And, and it just, it's, it's, that's like, how do we solve that issue? And I think of even coming, what's coming up, you know, in the UN climate summit this fall, there's a little more representation there, but it's still not really encompassing. Yes. You have at least China and India who play a massive role. Absolutely. And have such a wide spectrum of poverty to, to, to wealthy elites and, and those countries, but it's still not really representative of those countries that are feeling feeling the most displacement and mm-hmm. and dealing with the climate migration. So why do you think like do you do you do you think we need to kind of reset a table on, you know, who like how do, how do we involve more folks and more of these countries in the global policy making? What does that look like? Does that mean, you know, redesigning a new summit, a new organization, you know, like how, how do we, and of course, then you have the resource issue of, they also don't have the resources to deal with this. They need the United States and China and Western Europe and India to take this really seriously. And then you have the other complicated issue within those, you know, larger countries and nations, Indonesia, I'll put in there as well. They're also at different levels of their own development, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't like put the same emissions caps necessarily on the US that you put on India because India has a lot more people living in poverty. And has a lot more work to get people out of poverty than the United mm-hmm. States. It's just, it's a like, how would, how, if you could redesign a way that we put the right people at the table and those that are being affected who today have basically no voice in the global policymaking, they were not at the Paris Accord, you know what I mean? These kind of things. How would you redesign it and how, 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 how what, what might that look like? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, those are really good questions and you really get into the heart of the heart of the matter, right? So, I mean, without going into the weeds, essentially a lot of those things have been identified, right? And and they've been and and they've come out through a lot of the uh, COP processes, which is the Conference of the Parties, which is what COP stands for. And you know, so when the Paris Agreement happened, you know, it was like you, I'm sure you you know your listeners will remember it was like oh COP 15, and and what's coming up in November is COP 26. So all that just means is Conference of the Parties, meaning the 26th session, right? So what and and what is this party we're talking about? We're talking about the Conference of the Parties um, that are party to the United Nations Framework. Um, convention on climate change. And through all these COPs that have happened, what, what, where are we at? Okay, we have a situation in which that was discussed, right? That because we're dealing with a situation where through colonialism, many countries, well, I shouldn't say many, a few countries have developed at the expense of many, right? And not only have they developed at the expense of many, they have polluted the planet at the expense of many. And that is really where the disproportionate gains have been made, but also the disproportionate impacts and losses are going to be borne by the vast majority of the planet, planet's inhabitants, both human and non-human, who actually have to face the injustice now of dealing not only with gross levels of underdevelopment, which looks like 
abject poverty, but also dealing with a system that is really tilted against them, right? That is not tipped in their favor. So then you're dealing with a situation of negotiations that has identified that and allowed a principle called common but differentiated responsibilities. So that essentially says certain countries, we we all have a common responsibility to lower our emissions, but we have differentiated responsibilities on how, how much certain countries have to lower their emissions and by when. And so the, you know, the rich polluting countries that have polluted and developed at the expense of others have the primary responsibility to lower emissions, to support the developing countries with climate finance and to, and that climate finance is really about building adaptation and resilience for the effects of climate change, which are in some cases are going to be catastrophic and irreversible. And so there's a mechanism called the loss and damage mechanism, which is technically exists to sort of talk about the ways in which countries should be or or should maybe, let's say, oh, well, I'll just say it, should be compensated, but it doesn't exist. And why doesn't it exist? It doesn't exist because it's it's not in the interests of the powerful to allow mechanisms that allow these countries to be compensated, right? So we're talking about climate or economic reparations, for lack of a better word. And, and, and that really just isn't on the table. And so that's really, I mean, I've just laid it out to you extremely plainly. I'm not being that diplomatic here, but but those are, you know, roughly speaking, why you see this sort of imbalance in, in the negotiations and imbalance in effects and impacts and disproportionality in why so many millions are suffering now, but not just suffering, James, but being pushed back, right? Yeah. Let's also not forget the development gains, small as they might have been, but impactful. You're talking about countries that may have gone during the Millennium Development Goals from living on a dollar a day to $2 a day, who are now even going to lose those gains, right? Today, Madagascar, the WFP has declared that Southern Madagascar is in what is called the integrated, so IPC5 would be the highest food insecurity phase you could ever have, which is famine. It's, it's literally cat- uh, catastrophe slash famine. That is the highest phase you can be. There are parts of Southern, Mad- Southern, Southern Madagascar that are, in, that are in IPC phase five today. And we do not in international policy use the word famine very loosely. So, you know, so, so really the way we, we're supposed to be saying this is Southern Madagascar is on the brink of famine. I mean, it isn't. It's, it's, it's in famine where 1.14 million people are... Um, at risk of famine and about 14,000 people right now, which they expect to double by October, are literally in famine phase. And people have been climate displaced as you and I speak, you know, and that is the situation. Here you and I are sitting in a heat wave that's basically almost all throughout the United States, but it pales in comparison to the fact that people are eating leaves, people are eating bugs, people are eating dirt in order to survive in Southern Africa. Mm-hmm. So 
the injustice of that in a country that has had almost zero contribution to global emissions is is I I I'm I just I don't have words. I will just leave, you know allow WFP to say it where the head of the organization said this is a country that is experiencing famine conditions, not because of war or conflict, but because of climate change. And good on the WFB for calling it out and saying what needs to be said, you know? Yeah. That, that's, that's the landscape today. And the, the challenge amongst many, but the one that stands out to me is like, you know, there's pretty good consensus. I mean, obviously there's always going to be pockets of, of, of deniers and, and pocket and, you know, cult groups and, MAGA groups, like, and all those things, like, there's always going to be people who deny climate change. There's people that deny the earth is round. You know what I mean? Like, it's always, it's always going to exist. It's okay. Right. And when they get into power, it's not as okay. But, you know, for the most part, they don't usually get in the most powerful positions, the, the, the real conspiracy crazies. But there's consensus for the most part that climate change is real and that humans are affecting it uh, dramatically, right? Mm-hmm. What there's not consensus around within our own country, let alone in the world, is just how dire it is, who's driving what, who's its effect, how it's affecting different people. And, you know, just this sort of consensus of, of measurement and analysis. Mm-hmm. And then it, I imagine it becomes really hard to set standards and policy if you can't agree on any foundation beyond climate change is real, because that's not specific enough. That's not enough to create policy from. Yeah. You have to actually break down the drivers, break down the contributors, break down those that are being affected by it. And then who's being, and then you have to, then it's a game of who's being affected worse than others, which is also hard to do to compare human suffering. But we, we sometimes we have to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, the suffering you and I are feeling, as you just mentioned at our heat wave. Yeah. From a relative to like my day yesterday, today sucks. Like, but it's not suffering of, like you said, people that are, you know, in famine or, or, you know, seeing their, their, their towns is taken over by, you know, I mean, look, you know, by tsunamis and, and by the rising coastlines and, or having their whole, you know, uh, ecosystems destroyed because of ocean acidification and can't get their food supply anymore. And like, you know, that, like, look what happened to Mauritius last year with the oil spill. Like, yeah, they, they can't recover like we could in the BP spill. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I mean, yeah, it was a smaller, I mean, I, I saw these headlines. It's a, it, yeah, it's a much smaller spill than BP. Sure. But what about the state of recovery yeah. for people in Mauritius compared mm-hmm. to the people in Louisiana and the Southern United States? When you look, when you factor that in, the Mauritius spill is far more devastating on yeah. a human But these yeah. things, but so do you, do you think there, do you see any progress at being made out there? And I always try to also tie it back to some hopeful thing because it's sometimes we get in these discussions, it feels like hopeless. Yeah, um, exactly. But <laughs> what are some of the progress points on at least getting some consensus on what's, you know, who's causing what, who's like, you know, and, and how it's affecting some groups more than others. Do you, do you, do you see pockets of progress there, even if it's not as fast as we'd like, like it to be? Yeah, I do see pockets of progress. I mean, you know, it's, it's really weird, you know, because I'll answer these questions in, in you know, in, in my own unique way, because I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm really like in deathly close to these, to mm-hmm. these issues on a daily basis. I mean, I spend 90 hours a week, you know, 
looking at, at what is really going on. And, and, and that's not to say that I'm just looking at climate change, you know, and which for me has never been an environmental issue, right? And, and that's, that's one of the biggest sort of like problems, but also one of the sources of solution that, 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 that's a very like positive indicator that seems to be happening is that we are starting to see some awareness in the places and, and, and countries uh, where there are levers of power that climate change isn't and never has been an environmental issue for most of the world. Right. And you're starting to see then that also within that a step further, that climate change then disproportionately impacts already marginalized, already segregated, you know, racially ostracized populations, economically ostracized populations. You know, you're talking about how climate change oppresses people further, how climate change, I, I like to think, is akin to persecution for many, many people who are already, you know, marginalized, much like refugees are. So we have made some some really important, you know, progress in recognizing that, not just by the public, but but also by policymakers. That's one. In in areas of, of actual refugee law, we've made progress just last year in that UNHCR, which is the UN agency entrusted it with the mandate to hold the 1951 Refugee Convention, which is the body of law, right, in, in human rights and refugee law that, that protects all of us were we to be, were we to need to seek protection in another country, has, has put out legal considerations that, that essentially say that climate change can, you know, persecute one, uh, can persecute someone who is a refugee, who fits the definition under the convention, can persecute you further, right? Or climate change can be an obstacle that to a refugee that sort of like further marginalizes you, meaning if you needed resources or, or, or tools or, or what have you, let's say in your country or in your country of exile, you know, you might, because you're a marginalized person, not have access to those resources that are now that you're now sort of livelihood dependent upon. So, you know, there, these are hugely important and, and, and helpful steps forward, which ultimately, you know, help us make some lasting policy changes. Going back to that question you asked me about, so how do we sort of like change things at the negotiating level, right? So, you know, when you have this, this type of like tipping point in the zeitgeist and in the culture, you know, and then also in, in the policy realm, that's exactly how you make change. So how are folks defining what makes someone a climate refugee and what defines climate migration? The definitions are great at best, and that actually serves as a roadblock to progress. Getting alignment on these core definitions will go a long way in getting more done to address them. There's a lot of ways to sort of think about that and answer that. To some extent, we get caught up on the terminology and it can be a roadblock to progress. And then to another extent, the terminology is incredibly important so that we can move forward, right? So that we can all be on the same page and, and be speaking about the same thing. So it's a little bit of the chicken and the egg sort of, you know, scenario. But, but let's get into it. Okay. Climate migration. Now, first of all, let's forget the climate part of it for a second. Migration of and by itself. Yes, migration can and often does happen on a voluntary basis. Migration also happens on a forced 
basis. The problem is that that's an invisible line that nobody can actually know or see, right? And we also, and what do we call someone who, who migrates? A migrant. We have no international legal definition for, for migrant, okay? So that's, that's tricky in situations of forced migration, because how exactly are you going to classify somebody who might need protection, who might be migrating because they are forced to migrate because they are dealing with the situation that's become untenable? And there are certainly situations of forced migration, people that we call forced migrants that doesn't exactly have a classification, but would fall more in line with a refugee definition. And a refugee is defined as somebody who, due to a well-founded fear, has, cr- has crossed their, the boundaries of their country and is seeking protection in another country for reasons uh, of race, religion, uh, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. And climate change is nowhere. Yeah, it doesn't cover climate change. doesn't no. cover natural disasters. Not at all. Exactly. Now, in the past, we have had definitions that that certain countries have, you know, a a variety of countries have had natural calamity, environmental disaster, basically things that would fall under climate change within their definitions. And very, some countries, even just extremely recently, had those definitions within their own, you know, national definitions, which have recently been removed, which is also probably, you know, emblematic of... um, shifting drivers, right? For why white people are on the move these days. So instead of saying the word, you know, migration or, or migrant to, to sort of capture the whole suite of movement, you know, what's often said is just mobility, you know, human mobility. It's not really a term that I use a whole lot because often the conversations I have are at the very granular level and we're getting right into it. And I'm not trying to shy away or negate the fact that people are moving through situations of forced elements, you know, for the, for the, for the most part, if you're talking about a situation, like you said, where someone's leaving climate, sorry, California to go to Boise, they might have the means to do that. And maybe they're getting ahead of, you know, flashpoints that they see coming, right. That they see, oh, my neighbor went through this, that, and the other, and I really don't want to go through that. And I can read the tea leaves and I'd rather just leave while I can. And I'm in a situation where I can sell my house, make some good money, yada, yada, yada. Okay. That, that sounds pretty voluntary choice, kind of empowered positions. Paradise, California, somebody who dealt with that fire and then was forced, right, because they were in a disaster to evacuate their homes. And then Maybe their situation was so untenable, they lost so much, they really, there was no way that they could stay, that they chose then, chose, quote unquote, to leave the state. That's where that sort of invisible, how, I don't know, James, is that voluntary? Is that involuntary? Like, how can we know? And where are the legal definitions, parameters, policies, structures that would say to anybody, well, I don't know, that that sounds pretty like choice to me, because at the end of the day, 
Get, no matter what their situation may be, maybe maybe it turns out, oh well, they got a lot of FEMA assistance, this that, and the other, and they were they they added it up, they did a cost benefit analysis, and they said, you know what, I get more bang for my buck in Boise. I'm going to get out of here. That fire was enough for me, and I'm done. And we might consider that person a climate refugee. Now that would be a, definitely the wrong term, refugee. Why? They haven't crossed an international border, right? Mm-hmm. You're still within the United States. Also, they are not leaving for any of those five grounds that I mentioned earlier. But in terms of the philosophical component of all this, in terms of where there are gaps, where there are a lack of safety nets, where there are you know, policies and, uh, and a lack of laws and a lack of protections and, and ways in which that we can't measure or capture or know what exactly that family went through that led to that decision. How can we know at all whether they feel like refugees, whether they felt forced to make that decision, whether they felt they had no other option, whether they felt that I better do this now because I have no idea what worse fate awaits me. Yeah. Well, I mean, a a great example of that too, as you, as you mentioned, that reminds me of what happened in Houston years ago with the flood. And for context for listeners, a big problem was that Houston, which, you know, the, the powers that be in Houston were so determined to make Houston a fast growing city and grow the economy. They built a bunch of essentially affordable housing on top of wetlands areas that naturally absorb water. And guess who was hit the most by that those flooding? Those lower income folks living in that affordable housing that was built in the very area that is naturally designed to absorb water. <laughs> and it a concrete doesn't absorb water. So, and I can imagine for that person, yeah, even if you wait long enough and we know, you know, it's not like FEMA comes in the next day and rebuilds you a home. There's a long process of a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of displacement. You have kids, you have to work. Those things, those responsibilities don't go away. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like, oh, well, we lost our home. So our kids, just, they just don't get hungry anymore. No, they get hungry every day. They need to be fed. Mm-hmm. But if, even if at some point they're, they're presented the opportunity, oh, we have, we have new affordable housing in the same area for you. Um, that person had make a choice of like, I don't, that last year, was the worst year of my life. I can't do this again. I, I, my family was sick. Yeah. And so that person, yeah, technically makes a choice to leave Mm -hmm. and go seek affordable housing in another city, which we know is not easy, Mm -hmm. but it's not really voluntary. No, you know what I mean? Like you wouldn't call like my situation's voluntary completely. Mm -hmm. That situation is not voluntary, but I could see how it can be classified as voluntary. Hey, Mm -hmm. we presented you the affordable housing again. Right. But it's like, yeah, but the same thing is going to repeat itself. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, we, don't, we don't learn from these mistakes. And why do we learn from these mistakes? Because the people that benefit from rebuilding the house, that benefited from building Houston, get paid again to rebuild in the same place. And mm-hmm. they're not living in those units. They're exactly. living more inland. They're living in kind of ivory towers, so to speak. And they're like, yeah, we'll rebuild again. Just give us the contracts. Exactly. It's, it's very frustrating for sure. Yeah. It, it definitely is. You know, I, I would encourage um, anyone listening right now or when this airs to, 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 to read an article that I just wrote and posted, I, I guess that would be yesterday, 
the Florida Keys, you know, Florida is certainly uh, Florida, Texas, Louisiana, and Alaska. These are these are definitely states very much frontline states here in the United States dealing with all the issues that we're talking about. The Florida Keys in Monroe County, the county commissioners have approved a budget uh, of $1.8 million over the, uh, sorry, billion, that's with a B, like boy, over the next 25 years to basically raise the roads because the Keys are going to be underwater, which means all the homes are going to be underwater. The Florida Keys over the past 10 years have gentrified greatly, but that's not to say that there isn't poverty there, that there aren't people living on the islands of the Keys in mobile homes along the dotted lines of the shores, right? That's not to say that one in four residents in the Keys um, are Hispanic or, you know, Latinx have probably those issues I was talking about earlier. Are they insured, underinsured, uninsured? Are, are they going to be able to withstand the onslaught of climate conditions and rising water of, you know, rising seas meets porous limestone, which is what the Keys are. And how does that, what does that look like next to the very rich, the uber rich and the rich and upper middle class, right? So when you become the minority that's often overlooked and the actual policymakers are now saying, hey, guess what? We have $1.8 billion, but it's not going to be enough to meet everyone's needs. So some people are just not going to get relocated. Some people's homes are not going to be bought. Some people's roads are not going to get elevated. So I don't know. We're going to need to figure this out. That's really where it lies right now in the Florida Keys. I mean, can you believe that that's a situation that is happening as we speak in this country? Amali and I then talked about what's going on in the Northern Triangle and the U.S. Southwest border, the issue that has been front and center, particularly on conservative-leading news over the past several months. It was really valuable to get her perspective and take on the situation, and then to hear from Wilfredo, who is directly on the ground from Guatemala, who joins us again right after this final piece with Amali. I think I, I mentioned earlier, right, that the the Central America Dry Corridor is 30% of the entire Central America territory. So- and, and you're right, you know, this is, we're talking about a huge area. Let's also not, uh, not forget, though, that it's the economic backbone of the region where the greatest population density lives and where a number of indigenous groups reside. So right now at the border, we've had arrivals from Central America for actually quite some time, you know. So this isn't something that sort of is just in the last year or two, as I think a lot of people might tend to think. Beginning in 2012 or so, border apprehensions for arrivals from El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and then by fiscal year 2018, arrivals from the Northern Triangle countries, you know, which, which are these countries, comprised about 52% of all the apprehensions. And you know, and this is unfortunately one of the ways in which you can know this data is because when when people do come to the border, they are very likely coming to seek um, asylum. But because this is considered illegal immigration, you know, people are apprehended by by ICE or or, or, or by border control. So you can you can see that you know it, it has dramatically shifted from 2012 to 2018 from from being largely Mexican arrivals to Northern Triangle country arrivals. And and then the type of migrants has also shifted from like young males to unaccompanied um, children, and then also women and, and, and also families and, and mothers with children. 
the UN also, the UN Development uh, Program. And then also we have data from the Economic Commission on Latin America, which tells us that about 265,000 migrants from these Northern Triangle countries, which is El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, have left the US in much larger numbers since 2014. Again, their data also shows that the growing number are, are women and children. And then, you know, again, also they have the same uh, border apprehension data. So it, it, it continues to sort of like support exactly what I, what I just showed you or told you that U.S. border apprehensions reveal. And also the fact is that in Honduras, especially, there's been like a 90, upwards of about 90, 94% of outward migration, which is a huge uptick from what it, what it used to be in, in, in the same time frame, which is about um, 2000 to 2010. And, and we're continuing to see that, um, that increase. Now, what has also happened in the last year, of course, is the COVID-19 pandemic. Then you had hurricanes Eta and Iota, which were both category four. In fact, I think one of them might have been five, but then came down when it struck might have been four, but I'm pretty sure they were both category four and five um, storms that hit the same region essentially within a two-week period. So back to back, no time for preparation whatsoever. And, and, and essentially just completely devastated the, the region, impacting over four million people. What it also did was devastate whatever was left of dwindling food security in this region. And we're talking about subsistence living populations here. We're talking about subsistence living farmers who were already prior to COVID-19, prior to these hurricanes, were dealing with the effects of five plus years of drought. One particular year in which temperatures scorched the earth. Then you have rainfall variability. So you also are dealing with situations of climate change and climate variability. So what that looks like is this rainfall variability that you have scorched earth, rainfall variability that does not come when expected. So the planting season is completely disturbed. So you cannot plant the seeds knowing that the anticipated rains will arrive when they should, therefore the crops will take hold. You're also dealing with that scorched earth, so that's a problem for seeds to take root. Then when the rains do come, you're dealing with incredibly top dry uh, soil that then just immediately gets washed away along with it, those seeds, and you have five plus years of eBay completely failed harvest, failed crops demonstrated by, you know, food security, rather food insecurity and, and, and livelihood loss and, and also supported by that internal migration and then finally the emigration out, out of these Central American countries to the United States, but not only the United States, to other countries in the region. So, you know, you do have other Latin American countries that have also absorbed Central American asylum seekers, really. And when you consider the fact that these are largely indigenous populations and that background I, I mentioned earlier about the marginalization, the history of massacres, the history of oppression, populations then that may choose not to self-identify as indigenous because of being attacked or marginalized on the basis of ethnicity or race. You are also dealing with the fact that these are very, could very well be asylum seekers who really are refugees who also happen to be fleeing situations of climate change, which make them what 
we were talking about earlier, forced migrants who also do very much meet that asylum threshold of maybe fleeing on the basis of, of race. And we are starting to see about, you know, maybe 25% of the asylum seekers who have sort of like come through the system thus far, certainly meeting that nexus dynamic of being Indigenous populations who do meet the human rights conditions I mentioned earlier, but are also farmers who have fled those climate conditions in the dry corridor. So things are not, the outlook for the dry corridor also don't uh, look very good. And this is a region that has always been very high on climate risk indices for, for disasters, especially Nicaragua, El Salvador, Honduras as well at varying times. But, but this entire region has been on climate risk indices, you know, over the last 10 year, 10 plus years. So clearly this is not a 2021 issue. What's happening in countries like Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras have been building and worsening for years. Now it's starting to hit a tipping point, where if nothing is done to address climate displacement head on, which we will discuss solutions for with Amali in just a moment, the humanitarian crisis is only going to grow bleaker. For some further context, it's helpful to understand just how critical agriculture and thus environmental health is to Guatemalan people, which we asked Wilfredo. Roughly how many people in Guatemala today work in agriculture or agriculture-related industries? Maybe another way to ask that question is how many people in Guatemala work in an industry that is directly affected by climate change? In Guatemala, there's 50 million people. The distribution is 49% male, 51% woman. 46% of the population lives in the country, rural zones. 43% are indigenous. 59% lives in poverty. 23% lives in extreme poverty. 45% are minors, kids, minor five years old that live with chronic nutrition issues. 32% lives depending on the agriculture. And that specific percentage influence on the climate change. So all these people cultivate their own food. Last year, there were two massive hurricanes that hit Guatemala and neighboring countries within two weeks of each other. Hurricanes Eta and Iota both with winds topping 150 miles per hour and both causing billions of dollars in damages. We asked Wilfredo to help summarize the damages from these two hurricanes, particularly in Guatemala in 2020. So Guatemala is one of the most vulnerable countries regarding climate events. So these events accelerated poverty conditions for this population that most of the time, uh, most of it lives from agriculture. So the impact of the hurricane demonstrate how vulnerable is the country. And this situation sums up with the COVID that also affected the economy for 4.5 millions of Guantanamecos. And the, the areas that were most affected were the rural zones and the people who do agriculture of coffee 
and and wheat. So we did a diagnosis uh, after the the storms just to verify the impact, and we noticed uh, a lot of losses for mostly women that that works on the industry. So there was a lot of death there, and also a lot of you know chickens and and pork and all these people that work in this industry and they use um, this as a way to generate income. They lost all of their properties and everything. And the estimated area that was affected was 163,000 hectares that generated roughly $100 million losses. But the increasing size and veracity of hurricanes are not even the most troubling issue Guatemalans are facing. Most of the country has been in a 10-plus year drought, much like California's in the U.S., only with a tiny fraction of the resources to adapt and manage it, like California has. The situation in Guatemala has a lot of variables, including discrimination, racism, um, government issues, corruption, the economic model of the country makes difficult for the population to search and evolve. Specifically on the rural zones, on, on the countryside, the climate change has impacted these populations that already has higher levels of vulnerability. The climate change has generated like a huge impact in the country all the way from side to side and the population has truly noticed this impact and mostly because they depend on agriculture so we've been working with a lot of organizations to improve this situation introducing seeds that are adapted to this extreme dry uh, weather situations. This has allowed the land to improve in little, in four months, the production for corn and beans, even in two months. So there's still a lot of resources that are not being produced, and especially uh, talking about corn and beans. So this makes it really hard for the people there. So they decided to move from the rural areas just to look for better jobs opportunity and a better future. So that's why you see people from Guatemala emigrating to countries like Mexico and the United States. You know, given something like, you know, climate change is not an issue that is going to slow down, right? I mean, if we do every, if we did everything right in terms of changing the way we live, you know, it would still take decades to slow down the effects of climate change. So seeing that is it's a reality and an unescapable reality, you know, what are the prospects for Guatemalan people? Like, you know, are they going to be able to <clears throat> adapt and change their lifestyle and trade for, you know, the type of agriculture in their changing landscape quick enough? Or is, is migration going to be something that is, is, is just going to be part of, of life because, you know, there's, there's no escaping 
this this extreme weather. There's no escaping climate change. There's no slowing it down in the short term. Maybe we can slow it down in the long term. Hopefully we can. But in the short term, there's no escaping it. So what does that mean for Guatemalan people? The first action that we're doing is to increment the capacity to adapt to climate change. So we're working uh, with mostly with the population that works in all cultures. So we're trying to make them to emigrate to different economical sectors. Guatemala is not very big and the population, the rural population, we're trying to educate them to generate new ways to generate income by emigrating by different industries and educating young people for more technical jobs. So we want to incentivate the government so they can provide us for better opportunities and also the private sectors for better jobs opportunities. Guatemala is a centralized economy and we're aiming to decentralize the economy so we can provide education for communities and organizations so we can train and make the adaptation needed for climate change. These steps are being taken by building consciousness about the impact of climate change and it is a problem that we can't stop. We just can't implement ways to adapt to it. This was a good segue to one of the final questions I asked Amali. How would she recommend addressing this issue in both Guatemala and the U.S., and how might she prioritize those things? Well, let's start with the people that are there, right? I mean, part of the problem right now is that, interestingly, aid tends to, you know, we, we say there's a whole lot of conversation about, oh, let's, you know, addressing the root causes of migration and and essentially and you know the assumption being also policymakers say the same thing that you know and you saw this with Kamala Harris and all the press that came forth with her trip to Guatemala and all that's ongoing there that addressing root causes is important so that we can have more effective interventions right that are really going to get to why are people moving now I think it's rather interesting that a lot of times what we're actually asking tends to be, and and this is probably just just an overlook most of the time. I don't even think that it's it's coming from any like malevolence, you know, you know, root. Uh, there, there, there's a flaw in that assumption because when you say that you want to address the root causes, you are thinking only that you want to address the root causes so people don't come to your country. You instead should be asking, I want to think about what are the root causes so that I can help people stay. And that is an entirely different way of thinking about problems. And and it's, it's maybe lost on someone who just heard that, but here's why that matters. If you make a policy that is about addressing providing means for people to stay, you will then make sure that the aid actually gets to the people who are the worst and the most impacted. You will make sure that the people who are most impacted have a seat at the table in the interventions, in the leadership, in the 
choices, in the information, in the way that that is disseminated, in the way that, you know, what exact technologies, you know, what, which crops, in, instead of what has often happened and, and what has happened even in just a couple of administrations ago, which is that the aid never actually reaches the people that it most, you know, should get to. It, it, it has been shown time and time and time again to be true. And in, in the context of Central America, this has absolutely been, been shown to be true. The other thing that policies tend to embrace is the aid is far more directed at security and border response than it is actually helping to people stay, helping people to stay. So if you put in measures that are about curbing corruption, if you if you if your aid is directed more at strengthening governance and institutions, while that's incredibly important, that doesn't exactly do anything for the subsistence farmer that I described in the dry corridor who is dealing with the impacts of hurricanes, who's dealing with the impacts of multinational corporations and all those scenarios I explained, who isn't anywhere close to the seat of the capital and govern- governments and et cetera, right? So there are all these like 10 steps of in between the farmer and where the aid is that will never actually impact any change. So, so that's one huge thing. The second thing is, you know, when people do actually come here, they're, they're left on their own most of the time. They're not given the aid uh, and the support to actually become independent, to become, you know, economically viable and resilient here. Even refugees that are resettled here in the United States are expected to be self-reliant within eight, nine months of, of services. And refugees who come here, you know, they, it's it's not it's 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 a cooperative agreement. They don't even it's not like they just get services that are just handed to them. They actually pay back a loan, which was the cost of their flight to come here, the cost of the logistics. So it's not as much services and help and 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 support and aid as one would think. So, you know, the the sources of money are are actually quite small and minuscule. And when the, where they're are bigger sources of money, it just isn't getting to where it's needed. So, you know, it's it's just as simple as that, James. I would I would just, you know, work with and ask the populations that are impacted. You have to go there. You have to go to the dry corridor and you have to talk to indigenous communities and you have to talk to farmers there and say, tell me what you're going through. Show me. Tell me what how what you've been doing to survive. Okay, so what did you do in that scenario where you had absolutely no choices, you know, and you need to understand, right? How did people mitigate the impacts of that day to day, week to week, season to season? And that's how you'll start to identify, okay, what are the creative means through which people were identifying solutions? How are they leaning on each other's communities? You'll also recognize too how much women often end up being the sources of identifying solutions, becoming the agents of connecting communities to just find means to get to get by and to support one another. And women are often completely overlooked as in positions of leadership, as, as, as sources of change, as sources of solutions, you know. So there's just very simple things that we should do that we don't do. So who bears the responsibility in 
putting the work in to combat the growing issue of climate migration and financing it. In the case of Guatemala, their leadership needs to do more to adapt and provide for their people with these changing conditions, no doubt. But they are going to need help and a lot of it. As we see it, the United States needs to be accountable for our massive role, more than any other country in the world, in adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere and all the economic benefits we've reaped from doing so. Like the way I look at it is the United States played a big plays a big role more than any, any other country in affecting climate change, right? Because we have more emissions than any other country in the world. And that we are then responsible for helping implement changes such as what you're talking about, because we played a role in we played a big role in making making climate change a reality. And we've benefited from it, right? I mean, the American economy has benefited from all the emissions that we put out there and the American people have. So the way I look at it is the U.S. plays some responsibility and should be assisting this work. I'm wondering if Wilfredo see, you know, sees it the same way and if Guatemalan people see it the same way. Bueno, hay, hay un... There's a huge responsibility for the Guatemala government to respond to their population about their issues they're dealing with. But there's lack of investment and development in countries. So this can take years. So the cooperation from the United States to Guatemala is important to assist the areas that are more affected. Uh, and where the country has done anything about it. So it's a huge responsibility for the Guatemalan government, but since they're not actually taking action, we're uh, accepting and we see the cooperation from not only the United States, but other countries that help us promote this development process. So we do rely on them. I finished my chat with Amali around a very important point she made which is that solutions to help climate refugees, just like climate change itself, be it adaptation or mitigation, need to be done at the local level. Every region, every country, every culture has unique needs. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to this. Major powers in the world need to commit to funding the issue, but they need to put their egos aside and let the countries being impacted the most lead the way on how best to apply and implement that support. And I think one of the takeaways from this conversation that you've echoed throughout this 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 chat is that solutions really need to be localized. Mm-hmm. That you know we there is no one size fits all. We can't set solutions at the G7 summit. No. We can we can we can set funding and mm-hmm. we should and we should commit to it in a hard concrete way, not a soft you know way that gives us so many ways out of it. But the actual implementation of that funding has mm-hmm. to happen at the local level. Exactly. Because the are the the needs are very unique and very different, and so even you know my point on empowering women as a means of you know curbing some population control that might be effective in some areas, but in other areas it might not. Exactly. And and these are not these are complex solutions. And they need these are complex issues. They need complex solutions. They need localized solutions. And I think that's a that's a key takeaway here for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and, and going back to, you know, when you asked me about, you know, what, what, what does the international policymaking realm look like at this, at the moment with, with the COP and the G7 negotiations, you know, it's, it's as simple as that. 
we, we've come to a place where we agreed that the rich polluting countries were going to give $100 billion a year towards you know, climate finance and the green climate. Still plan. haven't done it, though. <laughs> not done it. And you know, it didn't come with a whole lot of conditions like, OK, so we're going to make sure that you give the money so that but but in return, women weren't going to have babies and you weren't going to come to my border and, you know, you weren't going to make it my problem if your crops failed. I mean, I'm sorry, not, none of these things were conditionalities. Although there's no conditions whatsoever. Although rich countries have always put conditionalities on poor countries, right? I mean, loans through the IMF and World Bank, and that created a whole that's created a whole bunch of other problems. But you know, isn't it interesting that you know it was it was actually quite quite simple. This was a pledge that these countries made. Nobody nobody forced it upon them. These pledges have not been met. And so that creates a domino and trickle-down negative impact because with what ours is anybody supposed to make any changes you know with what are people supposed to adapt with what are people supposed to mitigate and i'll say this lastly um migration in the context of climate change is is being discussed as a rightly so as a means of adaptation however how does one adapt to climate change through migration if there's no finance to enable that. And there are also only closed borders. So even that, which the rich polluting countries control, which are borders and money, is off the table in terms of migration, right? If you wanted to migrate as a means of adaptation in order to sort of escape the harms of climate change in your country, it's off the table because it costs a lot of money to migrate. Forcibly or not, it costs a lot of money to migrate. And the harsh truth is a lot, the vast majority of people are going to be internally displaced when they're within their own countries or trapped within their own countries and fall outside of the protection that we should be providing. And for those who do, out of sheer desperation, find the the means to come to some country's border, what they do find are closed borders. And what they do find are securitized and militarized responses and detentions and decades, if they even make it through the processes, decades of asylum and immigration processes. And then maybe a system that helps the second and third generation. I mean, that's that's really what things look like. So it's it's not it's it's not the easy oh, people are coming here to take away my resources kind of lens that some people might think it is. It just isn't. That's Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've taken up a lot of your time. I thank you for it. I applaud you for the work you're doing. It's incredibly valuable. It's inspiring. I'm sure you wake up every day and wish progress is moving faster than it is, but just know that like it, it is, you know, people like you are reasons for us to have hope and not feel hopeless. Oh, that's that's Yeah, and and I encourage all of our listeners to contribute if you can. I'll link to your donation page in the podcast description. And uh, yeah, and I'll, you know, if anybody has any questions, I'll send them to the, you know, your support email your organization if they want to follow up and learn more. Absolutely. Uh, org subscribe we send out a newsletter you know subscribe and read 
Reed's Reed Spotlight, I think is, is really important. It's not even a plug. I really sincerely mean it. It's not even a plug. It's about, you know, it really is about the education and awareness, as I said, you know, and, and I think if people knew the, I mean, it's been so wonderful talking to you and it's been wonderful talking because I know you get it. And I, and I know you can see how complex and interconnected all of these issues are and how difficult they are to even talk about. And it, it's something that you kind of have to just take the trouble to sort of like just follow on a pretty regular basis. But we hopefully make it rather interesting to, to learn about. I, I don't think our content's droll. So I would really encourage people to, to read what we write. We also, you know, try to look at this through the arts Look at this through, you know, uh, a lot of different lenses. But yeah, follow us, follow our content, climate-refugees.org. And then also please do support our work, which is outside the entire policy realm. So there is no real, you know, support in philanthropy or in aid for this work as yet. So yeah, climate-refugees.org backslash donate. <laughs> Finally. Wilfredo leaves us with a message from Guatemala to the American people that I think we can all resonate with. I think the message My message will be that the Central American population, not only Guatemala, but most of the countries from the region, they're struggling with a lot of issues, economical situation that affects their country. So all these people, what we're looking is to better opportunities, opportunities for life. We're looking for security better conditions for our families, better future, more income. So all the population that has migrated, they take it as the last resort, the last option in order to act access to these opportunities. We know that no Guatemanteco wants to leave their family behind. They don't want to leave the country. They just want to see their country get better and improve so they don't have to emigrate but they, we do it for survival purposes. And this affects especially to the young people, the young population that are aiming for a better future for their families. Big thanks to both Amali and Wilfredo for joining us and the work they've dedicated their lives to doing. Please go and learn more and support both of their organizations. I hope everyone learned something about climate migration. I know I learned a ton in making this episode. Let's get the right message and facts out there and not let the politically charged, polarizing media on both sides continue to create false narratives on what is actually going on. Till next time, thanks for tuning in.